I'm Sohail Janasari, a migrant rights researcher and activist. At the Qualitative Applied Health Research Centre, mercifully shortened to Quark, we aim to inspire debates on qualitative methods and practice. In this podcast series, we talk to people in other fields, such as philosophy, film and journalism, about the parallels and contrasts between their work and qualitative research. In doing so, we hope to broaden and challenge understandings of what qualitative research is and can be. Today, we're very lucky to have with us Andrew Pitkin, a reporter from the BBC. Andrew, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, how's it going? Um, yeah, my name's Andrew. I am a reporter with the BBC. I primarily write for the Scotland page of the BBC website, but I also occasionally make documentaries and news items for television as well. Thanks. And what are some of the more interesting, I'm sure they're all interesting, but what are some of the more <laughs> interesting work on? Um, well, in the last, what, 18 months or so, I made a radio documentary about people who die um, with no known family uh, and what happens to them in terms of their estate and, and their backstory and, and all of that. I also did a TV documentary about the Ibrox Stadium disaster. It was the 50th anniversary of that, where 66 people died leaving a football stadium. Uh, and we told that through the families and the survivors. And my last big one, I guess, was uh, bike crime, big increase in bike crime in Scotland and, and across the UK, actually. So it's quite sort of varied. Um, previously, I spent about eight, nine years covering politics in Scotland. And how do you choose what stories to look at? Is it something that is personally relevant to you or what's the criteria? Well, I mean, I suppose the number one criteria, if you're writing for the BBC or, or a local paper, is it's got to be interesting um, and informative, really. Personally, I, I suppose I have a couple of areas of interest and moving away from politics has allowed me to write about lots of different areas rather than being in a, in a particular specialism as such. But you're always thinking, you know, will this be of wider interest as well? Not just to, uh, obviously to yourself. So why you've got an audience in mind when you pick a research topic and you want that audience to care about it. Yeah, uh -huh. and at the BBC, we're kind of acutely aware of underserved audiences as well. So that is a big part of the thinking as well in terms of, you know, we, we have a, obviously a different remit to um, other media outlets. So the underserved audiences are, are key as well. So you pick the audiences based on, well, no, you, you have an audience in mind, particularly underrepresented audiences, and then you try and tailor a story that will interest them. So I want to get into the details of a couple of these stories. So, for instance, you talked about the story you did about the Ibrox tragedy. Mm -hmm. And you said that you told it through families and survivors. So I'd really be interested to see how did you get in touch with families and survivors and how did you tell it? So that's a really specific phrase you didn't just report on it you told it through people it was interesting because um because it happened at a football match it's a story that had been told mostly through the back pages rather than the front pages if you know it was sort of seen as a football story 
Uh, and in my mind, it was, you know, it was this horrific disaster in the same way that, you know, a train crash or a mining disaster would be. It was in that sort of field. And I, and I was looking through the coverage, um, particularly at the time, actually, and it just didn't feel like it had been told in the, in the same way you treat, you know, a train crash and the like. So it was, I was very conscious that I didn't want any footballers in it or, or kind of football people in it. I just wanted the people that had been there and had survived or the, the people that had lived with it the kind of longest because there was a lot of children caught up in it as well. There's quite a few children. So it was, that, I guess that was the starting point really. It was trying to work out, you know, who'd been there and had a story to tell or their story hadn't been told properly as such. So that, that, that process, the start of that process, there was a lot of, a lot of reading um, and working out, you know, who'd, who'd been written out before, but also that a lot of people that had spoken before were the, the sort of gateway to other people that had never spoken about it. And it was quite, it was interesting, actually, the the culture in Scotland, and I guess the whole of the UK at the time, you know, the, there wasn't an outpouring of grief um, in the same way you might see today. Obviously, there's no social media and the like. Um, you know, they were playing football again the next weekend. So that actually lent itself, that supported the story because a lot of people just hadn't spoken about it before. So I guess that was a starting point, really. So you feel like you approaching people gave them an opportunity to talk about it, an opportunity they didn't otherwise have? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of families felt that it'd been forgotten about. And their experiences chimed with my thoughts in terms of it was a football thing, you know, and, and not sort of swept under the carpet as such, but just not, yeah. And also, there's a passage of time. These things do get forgotten about as well. How did you start talking to people? Did you go to their houses? Did you, how do you make them comfortable enough to talk about something where they've had a, there's a sort of social taboo around expressing grief? So uh, it was a mixture of approaches uh, or methods rather telephone, email, Facebook, Messenger. Obviously, it was during the, the pandemic as well when I was filming it, so that kind of added a, an extra complication. Uh, but it was all the approaches by the nature of it were very sort of softly, softly, I suppose. And it was, wasn't you wouldn't necessarily ask someone straight out five minutes into the conversation if they want to go on camera. You and there was at least two or three people that it was maybe three or four conversations before they were sort of comfortable with who you were, where you were coming from, and what it might involve. But then I suppose what, what yeah, one we had an expert, uh, like a crowd safety expert, in the, in the piece, um, and you know he he's been doing media for twenty years, so he knew straight away what I was what I wanted f- from him um, and what sort of he could bring to the to the table as such. So that was more, that was probably the most straightforward uh, con- contributor, really. And so did you tailor your approach to the sorts of people you were talking to? So did you have a different method for the crowd safety person than someone who is a, has a bereaved family, uh, has a family member who died? Yeah, absolutely. Because obviously the, the crowd safety expert is used to speaking to journalists, but it's also used to the... Um, the sort of demands of television in terms of, you know, the location where we'd need to speak to him, the fact that we would go and speak to him for 
best part of two hours, but we'd use um, two minutes of him in the actual film. And whereas a lot of the people, the sort of punters as such we're speaking to, have no experience of speaking to journalists. Most people don't speak to journalists and certainly no experience of going on television. So a, a lot of that process is, is explaining, well, this is what will happen. Um, and and also explaining that, you know, it's not live. So if you're not comfortable, we can stop. And there's just quite a lot of, sort of hold, uh, hand-holding, rather, in, in that kind of process. Yeah, it looks like you went through a somewhat similar process to, to what we do in research, especially with the thinking about you can stop any time, you can withdraw and trying not to coerce people into it. Um, another thing that happens in, in a lot of qualitative health research is that people, we talk about difficult issues, like the one you are describing, you know, having lost a family member is not something easy to talk about. And it's likely, and people do become upset during those interviews. So I wondered what did you do in that situation? Did it happen and what? Did, how did you react? Um, yeah, there's um, one interview where a lady, um, an older lady, um, was talking and yeah, she sort of broke down and well, we just stopped really. That's that's what happened at that point was just sort of let her get her composure together. And then there was, I think there was one other occasion where we started and then you could, you could just tell the person wasn't quite ready. So, um, I, no, it was it was some sort of like oh I need to go and check a piece of equipment or something like that you know just sort of rather than making a big deal of it just thought well we'll just give them a bit more time to sort of get themselves together because I suppose it was fifty years on so obviously that perhaps makes it easier to talk about but then when you're actually in that moment for a lot of people they were saying oh this is you know this is take me right back to that day. Um, but I think it's important. I, my own approach is it's probably not to not to make too big a deal of it in terms of so you give people enough space, um, but you just continue asking the questions until yeah, uh, keep keep asking the questions sensitively. Um, but I think it's important to keep going, uh, and I think that can sometimes help the person as well if you sort of move things on to perhaps the next item that you want to talk about. Yeah. Was there any support that people could access after having this conversation with you? Did you were you linked with any sort of groups? Maybe there was, a, or maybe they are already linked with groups. I don't know. Well, um, I, I mean, th- this lady she had a daughter there actually, so that was really helpful. And certainly, well, in terms of the actual disaster, the um, and this was one of the interesting things that came out in the research. Actually, there is a there's a sort of community. Uh, among the Rangers fans who have sort of taken it um, upon themselves to to ensure that the disaster is not forgotten about, uh, and and to the to the extent where they sort of fundraised to clean up the graves of a lot of the people um, that died in the disaster, uh, and then they'll always do things on the anniversary as well. Um, so there is um, a lot of the people I spoke to were sort of plugged into that network as such, and I think they find that really useful to to know that. There is a place that they can go and kind of reflect on what happened with people that were either there or had sort of family members that were affected. What happened afterwards? How did you keep in touch with the people you spoke to? So, um, I mean, I suppose this must happen in a lot of fields. 
there was a bit of a, of quite a gap between some of the interviews and then the program actually going out. So that, that period, you know, just basically kept in touch with people um, and let them know, you know, when the program was going out and then when it was confirmed, when it was going out, got in touch with them as well. Um, and I, I suppose most of them, because now, we, you know, now we were in sort of mobile phone contact, it was on the day and the days after, it was mostly sort of text messages and, and WhatsApp um, and the like. There was... There was one person, and this happens a lot in, uh, particularly in TV, where not basically not everything can make the cut, um, and that's not anything to do with a contributor. It's just trying to make it work as a piece of television. Not everything can fit in. Um, so there was one person that I interviewed who didn't make the cut. Uh, so I had to obviously have that conversation, and that was quite difficult because you know, you've asked a lot of people to sort of share that story. Um, and then to tell them that it, it, it's not in it, it's yeah, it was that was quite difficult. Is there anything else you can do with the, the material you got? Is there any other ways it can be used? Well, um, so the story it was on TV, uh, and there was also a, a website version as well. Um, but it didn't actually fit. This didn't fit in with what we were doing on the website either. Um, so then there was an option. To, we were going to do a radio piece, and we could have used it, and then. Um, but then that didn't happen even. So um, usually there are, obviously the BBC has sort of multi-platforms, so there usually there is a way you can use this material on another platform. And I'm just curious, like, what what were the sort of conversations you were having on, on WhatsApp with people? Were you preparing them for what was coming out? Were you sort of having a back and forth about how they were feeling about it? What What did that look like? Well, I think um, in terms of preparing people, uh, that was probably earlier in the process. Um, certainly preparing them for what will happen in an interview, because there's a, there's a curious thing when you're filming for television, whereby you 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 have to ask the same questions twice because you need to have two different angles of that. So then that's quite a sort of unnatural thing for people to be doing because then they start to answer, but you don't need them to do the full answer. Um, so you need to sort of talk them through the kind of technical process of that. And I was also uh, quite open about the, the structure of the programme and the online article as well, because the worst thing, I suppose, in, the, in this job is is people getting a, a kind of nasty surprise about how things turn out when they, you know, basically they think the article's about one thing and then it turns into another thing and quite often that's out with the control of the, the actual journalist that's, that's written it but it's, yeah for this particular issue because it was so sensitive it was important to sort of talk people through but yeah in terms of closer to the time it was just well look this you know, it's coming out it's going to be this long your sections maybe a couple of minutes and it comes after this just just basically telling people you know what was coming up I think that's really nice and something that we could probably do in research. We don't really prep people for exactly where their, you know, quote is going to be and how. And we don't maybe, at least I don't, go back to people and say, look, this is where you were quoted. Have a look and have a look at um, what you think of it as well. So that's that's that sounds really nice. Are you, do you feel like the work you did um had an impact and if it did how did you 
make sure it had an impact? Were there things you did with uh, promotion, with uh, publicity, pub- publicizing it with perhaps working with this um group of uh, rangers fans that really helped make this meaningful yeah it's um i certainly got it got good viewing figures and the online version uh was read by i think it was 1.4 million people in the end so i was we were really happy with the impact that it had and the oh, how to put this, um, the relationship between the BBC and Rangers Football Club has been uh, quite difficult in recent years. So that was another factor. I mean, that shouldn't matter in terms of the, the kind of doing the piece. Um, but I suppose there was perhaps a nervousness about how it would be perceived, but it seemed to be perceived quite well um, within that world. Was there anything that the people you talked to wanted to change? I guess it was quite a long way after the, the tragedy so presumably some safety protocols had already changed that was a part of the documentary was was talking about how dramatically things have changed since then because it was the precursor to a lot of safety legislation and and that section of the documentary was actually we, we got a 3d model well it was more of an, an animation rather um of, of what went wrong and sort of explained how that couldn't happen now because of the changes in the legislation. You know, there are still crushes in sports grounds, but not not the way that this one happened, essentially. Great. And I was just um, wondering, is this when you do when you do a bit of journalism around a particular topic, is it something then you want to build on? Did this then spark thoughts about other pieces you could do and other ways you could sort of bring some underrepresented stories to light i would say probably this was reasonably self-contained because you know it was centered around a, an anniversary date of a of a story that we we knew or and you know we told it in a, in a different way but more generally if you pick up an issue and you report on it you tend to sort of stick with it and see it through so for example I, i've been following a a historic sexual abuse allegation case for probably three, four years now, and I, you know I will see that through to the to the end date when it comes to court, and yeah, obviously built the relationship with the the person who's made the allegation in that case as well. And is that time period you spend with that person particularly important in in this context because it's such a sensitive matter? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, that's, so you could have reported on her case solely on you know what what's been said in court but there is there's a, there's a sort of backstory as well to that particular case which i think is important to know because potentially in the future you might report on that and you've got to build the sort of confidence and trust of that person if they were going to tell their their sort of full story as such yeah it's um it's a sort of as the duty of care is the overarching kind of phrase and that uh, is what we were talking about before in terms of speaking to people and, and really explaining how the story will be presented to them as well. Because, yeah, again, and I mentioned this earlier, people don't tend to have interactions with journalists a lot. We don't always have the greatest of reputations with a lot of people. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a particular onus on the BBC to do it properly and do it right. Final question, and... I'm going to hit you with a slightly tricky one. 
on that reputation matter so there is a idea you know i've worked in um, a lot of charities and activist groups and when a journalist approaches us it's often can you come at this really unsocial hour do this thing which will cost you time and resources and ultimately won't make much change and goodbye we'll never talk to you again and so we're very very skeptical especially in a in context of migration where people are telling quite difficult stories so there's this exploitative aspect which is also something which is a criticism that can be leveled at qualitative health research we talk about very sensitive things we go in we go out so is this something you've grappled with in your time as a journalist is this something where which you've learned some lessons on or or changed your approach in any way it's really difficult and I, I recognize what you're describing because because yeah it does happen um and often it's the way that people communicate is, is half the problem as well and uh, i think which is a part of my reasoning for explaining this is the story i'm doing and this is how i'm doing it is, is trying to relate to people that you know um not necessarily in a documentary but day-to-day news you know particularly television news well i've got two and a half minutes to tell this really complicated story and i need you know i need someone like you to t- to explain it to the people at home but you'll only get 20 30 seconds of that yeah and you know after i've done that i've got another story to do as well so it's you know, in an ideal world, you would spend the right amount of time with people and not necessarily, you know, go and, go and see someone, meet them, find out about it, and then go back and film like another time, if you know what I mean. And you and, and you can do that in some circumstances, um, but not but not every time. And I suppose, yeah, with an issue like migration, that's a good example. It's a kind of this sort of lighthouse thing where, you know, the media, all of a sudden, it's, it's the big issue of the day. And then, you know, six days later, you wouldn't get a journalist to return your call on the same topic, would you? But the, the, it's, it's the news agenda. It's, it's it's a really difficult balance. Do you think there's anything you would change about how about that balance or how the media works? If, if you had, I don't know, if you could had a million pound, not a million, that's nothing, is it? If you had a hundred million pounds and you could start up a news organisation, I think um, I think you would probably have to forego doing as many stories. And as quickly, but potentially you're just doing fewer, but better stories, if you know what I mean. And then, but, but then if you were in that space, then you would definitely have the time to go and meet people properly and understand what's going on. And, you know, there are media organizations and publications and TV programs that do that very well. It's just, I suppose, in, in reality, not everyone can do that. Yeah, and some, some people can't do that and... Handle, handle it badly in terms of explaining why they can't do that if that makes any sense yeah no that makes sense and just to clarify so what is the underlying reason why people can't do it what's why why isn't there this time because there's just so much news out there really if you if you're doing a daily news program some days you could fill it you know five times over and you know the audiences don't want to watch you know seven eight minutes on every single item you know it's yeah, I don't think there's one single reason why that why that is the case. Great. Well, thank you. Um, that's that's all we've got time for. That was really interesting. And I would just like to end by asking you, where can people see your work? Uh, is there a website you have where everything's easily accessible? Because you've talked about some really interesting stories. 
Um, well, I suppose I, I share everything on my Twitter page, um, which is just at BBC Andrew Picken, P-I-C-K-E-N. Um, but I mean, most of my stuff is just on the, the BBC News website, uh, primarily on the Scotland page. Great. Thank you so much. I'll be visiting the Scotland page right now, basically. <laughs> um, brilliant. Thanks and have a lovely day.